And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on August 15th, 2022. Bryce Stewart is an ISA certified arborist and utility specialist. He has worked for the last 11 years with Davy Resource Group on a utility vegetation management contract with a major power company in Pennsylvania. He has volunteered extensively with the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society's Tree Tenders program, helping various neighborhood clubs around the city of Philadelphia, especially with their young street tree pruning efforts. He loves planting trees, but he also has a passion for controlling the invasive exotic tree species in preserved wooded areas near his home outside of Philadelphia. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Bryce. We're delighted you could be with us today. Well, I'm honored to be here. And I'll just say it at the outset, Bryce, we appreciate your affection for the podcast and we're really pleased that this has all come together. You clearly have a passion and commitment for working with volunteers or what we now call citizen arborists. And you're also committed to managing invasive woody plants in order to restore native landscapes. I'm always hearing about the time that you're donating to Pennsylvania Horticultural Society's Tree Tenders Program, along with Philly Tree People and other local woodlands that we're trying to preserve. And on top of all that, do you train other arborists about tree hazards and tree ID? Talk a little bit about your motivation with all this, because man, I really honor you for the time that you give over and above your day job. Oh, well, thank you, Hal. Um, Well, I think simply put, I really love trees and I'm pretty passionate about them. And for whatever reason, I find myself compelled to try and share my love of trees with other people. When I volunteer with tree tenders and Philly tree people, often it's in a, a teaching role. I teach pruning clubs how to properly prune their trees. I'll demonstrate how to plant trees correctly and I just, I seem to have, I can't not talk when I'm around other people. So I'm, I'm, I've chosen to channel that inability to shut up towards <laughs> a better future with, with trees and, and sharing knowledge about trees. Yeah, I've been on some tree walks with you and probably a nicer way to say it, but I do appreciate <laughs> the nonstop narrative. Uh, every tree that comes along, you have amazing insights and knowledge to share. And I think all of us on this screen and in the tree care community that love trees know that it's a it's a lifelong pursuit. Can I ask you how you got into trees? Was this a passion from a very young age or was it something that you developed over time? Well, my father is a woodworker and he's also uh, a horticulturalist. And from a very early age, anytime we were out and about on a, a family errand or whatever, he would point out certain trees if they were in flower or if he saw a particularly good specimen of something, he'd comment on it. And so from a, from a pretty early age, I developed a sense of which trees were which. And I further developed that in middle school and high school. I think in junior year of high school, I started collecting leaves and, and figuring out what trees they were from. Uh, a few years ago, I was cleaning out some boxes in my parents' garage attic, and I found a really large, really well-preserved American sycamore leaf 
that was between layers of newsprint for almost 30 years. And it was it was still pretty good. Uh, I had a Kentucky coffee tree leaf in there too, but when I picked it up, it totally fell apart because <laughs> that's a bipinnately compound leaf. And so all the tiny little sub leaflets just fell out all over the place. But <laughs> yeah, and then when I was in, in college, I, I continued to pursue uh, a biology curriculum. And then when I graduated, I worked at the Morris Arboretum of the University of Pennsylvania. And then I had a year internship there. And then Hal recruited me to work for Bartlett. And I worked at Bartlett for a year. And while I was there, uh, largely under his mentorship, I took the ISA exam and got certified. So you grew up with it and you're familiar with trees and you probably talk to them too, I would imagine. I don't talk to trees I, I actually sort of listen to them, if you will. I listen with my eyes. You know, the mm-hmm. body language of trees, that's a common phrase in arboriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy looking at a tree and figuring out its life history just from the clues that are there at present. I think a lot of us do that, don't we, Hal? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get off topic, but I have to say uh, this just two days ago, I, I did hug a tree. I was up at Andalusia Estate. And the groundskeeper was out of town. He wanted me to look at something. There's an amazing woodland. And I pulled off and I walked in and there was just this grove, not only of large diameters, but of little seedlings coming up from acorns. And I thought, it's quiet here. Nobody sees me. I'm going to hug this oak tree. And uh, it was fortifying. I want to stay on topic and go to our next talking point, Bryce, because along with being our biggest fan, uh, without even being asked, you went through the question that we're prone to ask, which is, what's your favorite tree? And you actually pulled some data out of that. Tell us about your analysis of over 90 show episodes. Yeah. And what do you think that tells us about our, our guests? Yes. As of this recording, I've listened to all 91 episodes that you've released uh, at least twice a piece. Some of them I've listened to more than twice. And I've determined that the most popular tree among your guests by far is the white oak, which is Quercus alba. And 12 different guests have voiced a love of that tree in particular. The next most popular tree is tulip tree, which is Liriodendron tulipifera. And that received eight votes. And the third place goes to black gum, otherwise known as Nyssa sylvatica. And that received seven votes. After that, it declines drastically. There's four apiece for oaks in general, American sycamore, and European beech. And then there's threes and, and twos of, of lots of other trees. But I don't know what it tells us about your guests. It's, it's possible that a lot of them have read Doug Tallamy's book, The Nature of Oaks, because he really talks a lot about white oak in that book. And they are a, a pretty fantastic tree. They branch widely. And if they're grown in the open, they're, they're generally wider than they are tall, and they, they tend to have very sturdy branching, so they don't fail in storms a lot. They've got lovely sort of silvery brown bark with interesting patterns on it. I really enjoy learning about the fungus that causes smooth patch. Uh, I forget the, the Latin name, but if, if you look at white oaks as much as I have, you've noticed that a lot of them have these sort of sunken, bald, light right. patches of bark. And that fungus affects other trees, but it's, it's very specifically affecting white oak in the Philadelphia area. And by the way, it doesn't harm the tree, uh, but it just looks cool. It's, it's interesting that you, you brought that topic up because we had Ned Barnard on, and he, was, yes. and he was telling us that that is a type of balding with the tree's age. And that balding is how you can pretty much tell how old the tree is. And the more I look around, the more I see it, even on tulip trees and white oaks and red oaks and uh, you'll see it on other trees too but not as prolifically as on those three species and I think that that's a really good way to be able to tell that you're in an old growth forest by seeing that balding caused by that fungus just like someone's hair thinning with age you know that whole (laughs) process it doesn't affect the person in general it just affects their head And it doesn't mean that they're any less intelligent or more intelligent. It just means that they've just changed. And I think that that's really something that we need to learn how to notice when we are standing in a grove of trees 
how you can pick those out and see the aging process right in front of our eyes if we allow things to age, because most of the time we don't want it to get that old. Yeah, you have to be patient. Um, one of the things that I've noticed about balding on the bark of, of really old tulip tree is that towards the ground on the butt of the tree, I've seen in numerous cases active carbon durant colonies, very, very small species of carbon durant. And that seems to be accomplishing the balding because they live only in the cork of mm. bark of these tulip trees. And most of the time, carpenter ants are bad news for trees because they remove wood that's already been decayed and they significantly weaken the tree over time. But these tiny carpenter ants seem to have found a niche where they're not harming the tree at all. They're just living in the bark. And once they've tunneled out the bark, it starts to fall off. And then you're left with those bald areas on the butt of the tree. I don't think I've ever seen any documentation of that. That's just a personal observation. And you know, the thickness of it, too, towards the base of an old, old tree, that extra thickness probably does allow a lot of other insects or other small microbes to get in there. And that we, we really don't know a lot about those kind of things. And I think that that's something that's really miraculous. You know, we've lived with trees for so long, but there's so much we don't know about them. It is an exciting part of uh, arboriculture. Yeah, we're, we're still early in the development of the science, and there's a lot of room for research and discovery. I've been reflecting lately since I'm kind of moving into a new phase of being an arborist myself, Bryce. You work for a large utility company that's based in the city of Philadelphia, yet you cover a huge swath of the Delaware Valley's urban forest. I've spoken with you when you're down on the Chesapeake in a suburb 30 miles north from that talking point. So you get up close to just about every type of home landscape or forest fragment, if you will, riverways and stream beds, and of course, right-of-ways. And as we've noted, you're a keen observer of both amenity trees, you know, standalone specimens, and the American landscape. And you've come up with a concept of what you call veal trees. Um, I've only learned a little bit about it from you from some very recent conversations. I wonder if you could talk about that in context for, for the arborists and urban foresters, the landscape architects, the people coming out of botanical gardens. Talk about your concept of veal trees. Let's spell that for our listeners. It's V-E-A-L, veal yes. trees. Yeah, it's meat. Um, well, I came up with that concept because, well, veal cattle are kept in a confined space when they're very young and they're, and they're never intended to grow to their full potential. They're very limited, they're very cramped, and then they're done. They're on the dinner table. And I see a lot of parking lot trees as quite similar, especially when they're planted in inadequately sized parking islands. You see plenty of, of trees that are capable of getting quite large, just sort of shoehorned into these tiny little islands. Islands, yes. Yeah. And grass surrounded by acres of asphalt. And it just doesn't make any sense. Very often I'll see sugar maple, red oak, and American elm planted in these situations, and they never do well. There's a rather large shopping complex uh, less than a mile from where I live in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, where when they developed it, they had these little skinny two parking spaces wide, and they're only a few feet deep. So it's, it's a very narrow band of soil. And they put two sugar maples in each one of these. And within five years, 90% were dead. Um, and now it's several years later, and there's only one left. And that one is very definitely halfway dead, and it's on its way out. And I feel like it's really common for, for developers to put trees in places that they really don't have any potential of surviving in. And I don't think it's because they want the trees to suffer, but you can tell that they're not doing well. And it doesn't make sense to plant a tree in a place where it's just going to die. I feel like as arborists, we have to sort of question the motive uh, for planting a tree in a parking lot. In some places, I think the municipality has zoning requirements. When there's development, they're required to plant a certain number of trees. And it's possible that they just get a bulk order and have a landscaper just plop them in and say, okay, we did our part. We planted trees. Now let's just get on with business. I don't really think most commercial property owners really want large trees in their parking lots because once a tree gets to be a certain size, it becomes a liability. So I think they don't really have desire to have large growing trees. And I think it would make more sense if they planted trees that don't have the potential to grow really large and just let 
small stature trees grow in these parking lots. And then you would at least have some continuity to the landscape. You'd have trees that are there for a few decades. Yeah. And, you know, every live tree in a parking lot is an opportunity for somebody to park in the shade. And they're, they're definitely appreciated by wildlife as well. In places where the planting conditions are a little bit more favorable, like in a grass strip at the edge of a parking lot, I've seen in a lot of cases trees that are doing quite well, and then they just get chopped. They get topped or hat racked or rounded over or what have you. They, they get brutally pruned uh, so that they're more compact. So I think that proves the concept that the property owner does not want the tree to get large. They want them to stay small. So I feel like there's room for dialogue between arborists and commercial entities. And I, I feel like if they want to have a good green image, then they would be planting trees that are appropriate to the location. As an arborist, I think a lot of people um, treat trees like it or things. And they are living beings. And most people don't have that concept that they're living beings and that they require care. And we don't want to care about anything that doesn't talk back to us or even things that do talk back to us. We don't want to care about it because we just want to put it in and walk away. And I think that that's a real big issue. The level of thought has to change about how we treat living things living beings in our landscape so that these living beings can survive and thrive in a location that is suitable for them. Just like if it was a veal or when I say veal, when I say a calf is in in a pen, you still have to give it care. And if you don't give it care, people know that that beef or that veal is not cared for because you can taste it. And that's why people like to have organic free range same thing with trees. I mean, we think about that. And I don't think people really give it one iota of thought when it comes to putting a tree in and that they're working with a living being. I agree. I feel like arborists tend to see trees, not just as they are now, but you know, when the tree's been there for a while, we can look at yeah. it. As we said, we can see their past. But if we're placing a tree in the landscape for the first time, we're not seeing it as a static thing. We're seeing it as a living being and we can envision what it's going to look like in years, even decades into the future. And I don't believe most people think about that. I, I see a lot of tall growing trees planted directly under power lines. Uh, my, my day job is with Davy Resource Group. And as you said, I, I'm contracted with an electrical utility. And uh, a lot of my job is finding trees that are growing wild and they're self-seeded. They weren't planted but they're definitely incompatible with underwire growth. We train our employees to determine the difference between a tall growing tree and a short statured tree because we don't want the line clearance contractor to cut down the ones that are underwire compatible. We want to keep those little red buds and those American hornbeams. We want those to survive. Flowering dogwood is another one that does really well under wires because they don't tend to grow tall enough to get chopped. But if there's a sweet gum or a tulip tree, or a black walnut or a sassafras growing under the wires, if you don't remove it when it's small, it's going to be a constant nuisance and no amount of pruning will make it behave in air quotes. It's always going to want to sprout back and it's always going to throw it into the wires and cause outages. So I, I see people planting trees on purpose right next to wires. It doesn't make any sense. I, I feel like if more people were educated about what the tree is going to look like in the future, they would maybe think about putting the tree a few feet further back on the lawn rather than right up against the sidewalk with the power lines overhead. And I have an idea why they do that, because I, I hear people say, I don't want to look at a telephone pole and I don't want to look at the wires. That's why they probably plant it close to it. And you're right, it doesn't make sense. But planting trees in a parking lot and how they're planted doesn't make sense either that whole idea. And I and I think you're on to something here. Back in the, I think it was in the early 1990s, I went to a power company up in uh, Reading and they had a show for all of us arborists to take a look at the, the height of the trees that could go under power lines. And it was a whole, I think it was about a hundred different types of trees that they had there that people had, some of them had never seen before, like um, Acer Bergerianum. Yep. And Acer Compestre, the hedge maple, or Colvertier paniculata, which was another one now, a golden rain tree, which seems to be seeding in a lot. 
Yeah, America's next great invasive, Eva. <laughs> I understand that, but what I'm saying is that it was the power companies that promoted some of these trees mm -hmm. for their own benefit, so they would not have to cut trees under power lines. And we really weren't testing those trees back then to see what the invasive, or I want to say the aggressive nature of some of these plants are. But the idea of it being there and having a place where people can go and see these plants is a great thing, like having a showroom for cars, having a showroom for trees, going into a place where you can actually see. And I, I know that in Fairmount Park, they have the area right outside the greenhouses there where you can actually see a whole range of different types of trees to take a look at the size and the shape and the color of the when they bloom. Um, but we need more places like that so people can actually see what they should be putting in rather than what they shouldn't be putting in. Oh, I agree. Uh, I want to get back just a minute or two because getting back to parking lots, I mean, this is a bunch of tree lovers doing a show for tree lovers. So, you know, the choir is listening and the choir is nodding their head. <laughs> and I feel like with utilities, I think a lot of ground has been gained. I think there's been a good information transfer about underwire trees. But if we go back to the parking lot scenario, Philadelphia is just coming out of, I guess, basically about a two-week heat wave. And I was traveling during a part of that and also experiencing heat in the Midwest. And every time we'd pull into a parking lot, you're scrambling for that little one or two spaces that happen to have the shade, right? And, and it's going to be like a red maple or a honey locust that's never gonna to get to full size and do what it's capable of. But you can see the consumer, the, the parking lot users, they're heading for those spaces. Yeah. And uh, I can also, on a little more optimistic note, I can think of a couple parking lots, and I, I bet you all can as well, that have been designed for longevity. I mean, we've got a grocery store over here. Not only are there wide planters, for the uh, elms that got planted, but they're locked into stormwater capture rainwater systems. Nice. But if it's all about human response, I know I feel a lot better when I pull into a parking lot and I go, these trees are going to be around in 20 years because it's a 12-foot wide planting strip, perhaps even properly mulched, properly capturing rainwater, and also uh, you know, handling excessive rain. There are some systems there, and I, I have to think, it'd be fun to just kind of start looking for the parking lots that work, because I do think humans subconsciously or otherwise appreciate pulling into a parking lot and seeing a collection of trees that are thriving, and by the way, giving them a little bit of shade. I agree. I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement in, in parking lot design. One way that parking lots could be friendlier to trees would be if the contractor installing the parking lot used pervious pavement. There are a few different systems that can be used, but nothing's worse for a tree than just a solid slab of asphalt or concrete that they have to sort of eke out an existence underneath with, with their root system. And trees are very good at finding every little bit of moisture and soil that they can, but at a certain point, there's nothing there. But there's one parking lot in particular that's right near where I live at the, uh, the campus of Haverford College, which is just outside of Philadelphia. And they have numerous planting islands, and I believe all of them are occupied by uh, trident maple, Acer bergerianum. Bergerianum. Oh, you know what? No, it's either that or it's hammer maple, which is Acer janala. I confuse the two, honestly. But whatever they've put in there, I'm, I'm almost positive it is Acer janala, which is hammer maple. They're doing very well, and they're a tree that is not known for growing taller than 15 or 20 feet. And I think when the college built that parking lot, they thought long and hard about what trees they were going to put in there, and they came up with that species, and it, it's thriving. A small growing tree that would be good in a parking lot, especially isolated from other trees and just out by itself, I think short-statured native trees to consider would be things like serviceberry, redbud, hop hornbeam, fringe tree, black haw, which is viburnum prunifolium. Um, staghorn sumac actually does quite well in, in very adverse conditions. Here, here. Um, mountain maple, which is Acer spicatum. 
and striped maple, Acer pensylvanicum, uh, both are not known for growing terribly tall. I'm not sure how well they do in extreme heat and dry. They wouldn't grow very well. And they so? they are, the Pennsylvania maple is an understory tree. So it would have okay. to be under understory. So that would cook. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I think in that grouping, you mentioned Acer bergerinum, which is um, the, the trident maple. It can be used a lot in parking lots and does very, very well. It tolerates a lot of heat and drought. Longwood has some in their parking lot there. They've had some for years in the one parking lot, and they do great. It's like they don't even bat an eyelash. Pronounce it one more time, Eva. Acer, and then think of geranium, bergerianum, <laughs> bergerianum. Yeah, I've actually seen bergerianum listed as a worldwide most suitable tree. Uh, and that was the work of Heinrich Schiomann from Sweden, who's opening up. He's the key presenter of the ISA in Malmo. And that tree is at the very, he's done an assessment with multiple variables and tri, trident maple, bergerianum, is at the very top of the list. And so is uh, Acer Compestre, which is the hedge maple. Yes. That's another one that uh, I hear people talking about quite a bit that there isn't enough planted of them, uh, especially mm -hmm. in the UK where they used to be uh, used as a hedge plant and then it was brought here to use as hedging. And it does really well trimmed multiple times. Yeah. You, know, you can cut that down so many times. And then if you need to make it a solitary tree, you can train it back into a solitary tree very easily. It's a very forgiving uh, tree. Uh, and again, it's short statured, as you're saying, Bryce, that you need short statured trees for some of these places. Yeah. I just want to emphasize for our worldwide listening audience that when we're, we're zealously talking about Bergerianum, I'm excited that I can finally pronounce it, but that it has <laughs> use worldwide. We're not just talking Philly. We're talking about locations in hot, dry areas and it's come up a couple times, including our recent guest from Kew Gardens, who's looking at, at uh, Trident as a suitable species, even for the UK. And yeah, and, and, and same with the Compestry, which is one of their yeah. natives and is not used nearly enough there. So that's that's something that you, you can really think about. And your list with Roos Tofina or the Staghorn Sumac, so many people say that it's so aggressive. It's so aggressive. But you know what? I love it. It grows. It's it grows in these disturbed areas where there's lots of salt. Yes. Yeah. And they can really, really look fantastic. Yes. When you have it in those conditions and you think nothing else wants to grow there, but they grow there and they Amen. keep putting on, they keep putting on new Preach growth it. and pushing out new new shoots and fall color. Fall color, spectacular. Edible. Edible. Drinkable. Drinkable. Yeah. All of those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Makes an excellent tea. <laughs> yeah, all those. So you pick some really good ones. Um, yeah, Bryce, it, nice work. Nice there work. is there is a little bit of a problem with Amelanchier right now uh, with uh, the rust. Uh, rust. And it's been, you know, people have been asking me, can you still eat the fruit? Well, the fruit usually gets affected and kind of turns like a mummified. Fuzzy. Yeah. Fuzzy. But if you can get some of the, put a, a range of types of amelanchier, like you were talking, there's so many different types of amelanchier. When I was doing my talk for the Woody Plant Conference, that whole group of plants, we can actually diversify. Bryce, I think I think you're onto something there. We can actually diversify the different types, the species that we could use. Yeah, there's, a, there's another native tree that I think would do well in parking lots, but you wouldn't want to plant it near a service berry or hackberry probably because it's red cedar. Uh, mm -hmm. Junipers Virginiana. <laughs> well, yeah. and you, well, and here you go. You can plant that and then not plant the amelanchier. So pick one or the other so they don't get the rust. Yeah. That's a great selection. And, and then just jumping back to red bud, um, canadensis can be a little fragile, but the, that shiny leaf one from Texas. Texensis. Texensis is sensational. It is sensational. Yeah. The subspecies of Texensis. There's also one called Mexicana, which is another subspecies, which is can grow very well here too. They both have very, very shiny, thick, 
glossy. on them. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that really prevents them from desiccation. Absolutely. But, you know, so the big question I'm going to take from this conversation is how do you reach people that design the parking lots and the people that design the shopping centers? And how do you say, hey, you're going to have to sacrifice a few parking places, but you need to think about designing livable places for your parking lot users that are going to provide year-round shade and, and cool your giant black parking lot during uh, July and August? Well, I think conferences and symposia are good ways to, to accomplish that as long as it's not just a whole bunch of arborists meeting and nobody else. What you were saying, preaching to the choir, <laughs> the arborists already know. But if, if you right. manage to get landscape architects and, and landscapers and nursery people uh, to come to the events where you're, you're talking about the right tree in the right place, then your, your message might get out a little bit better. I, I definitely think that there are some really good examples of putting the right tree in the right place, um, and they're getting more common. But overall, the trees that I'm seeing planted are mostly being planted by large commercial landscape companies, and the actual workers that are putting the trees in the ground are not trained, and they're not planting the trees correctly. And so even if they have chosen the right tree for the right place, what are the chances that it's going to survive? Because they are often planted way too deep, which results in stem girdling roots. Often they leave the burlap on and that wicks moisture away from the root ball on, on hot, dry days and it prevents the tree from getting established. And even if they've planted the tree correctly and they haven't left the burlap on and it's at the right grade, often they'll put up mulch volcanoes around them. And that doesn't do the trees any good either. And it's just, it's, it's a fad. And it's not going away anytime soon. And I've, I've paid attention to some online discussions where someone will say, oh, mulch volcanoes are bad. And most of the comments are from people that swear that mulch doesn't harm their trees and they've had mulch volcanoes on their trees for 30 years and it's not killing them. So that guy's obviously stupid. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So it, it seems like there's, there's a decent amount of pushback against what we think of as, as established truth. We think, well, you should not plant a tree too deep. You should not put a, a volcano of mulch up against the tree. And we're so used to that being the truth that we can't comprehend when other people push back against that. It, it just doesn't make any sense to us. It's been proven with science that it's true that it is harmful. And we think, okay, well, if a tree can survive 10 years, 20 years, that's great. But a tree should survive a hundred years, 200 years, if it's planted properly. And, you know, leaving the cage on, like you said, burlap, burlap. I've seen, <laughs> I see the burlap ties. It's like somebody has put a necktie around the trunk yep. of the trunk of the tree. And you see that not above the grade and it's wicking all the water right out. And you think to yourself, oh, geez, <laughs> who planted these? Well, people that haven't been properly trained. And, you know, I think one of the things that we need to have, which would be very beneficial, is cross-pollination between the different, different professions. The different yeah. professions, in other words, have a, a grand meeting with everyone there. Landscape, I know landscape contractors have their, their meetings, but cross-pollinate with tree people and with landscape architects and with other people who could actually do the training. One of the things that our company does is we go out and train people to show them exactly how to plant, how to make sure that your tree isn't planted too deep, because that really can create a real big problem down the line. I wonder, moving forward, we're at an interesting time and, you know, the possibility of some big tree planting initiatives coming through legislation, fingers crossed. A lot of it's going to be directed towards trees. A lot of it's also going to be directed towards electric cars. And I wonder if it might shepherd in a little bit of enlightenment because those parking lots of which we speak, those property owners are going to be upgrading and scrambling for electrical charging stations for the cars. And wouldn't it be great if that could kind of go hand in hand with the redesign of parking lot islands so that they are tree friendly? That would be nice. 
I think Hal, I'm skeptical. <laughs> Hal, Hal and I have been talking for a couple of months about arborists taking upon themselves to plant trees more. Um, and I definitely think that it's it's time that, that we do that. Um, you've mentioned it on a couple of the recent podcasts. And if, if we know so much about how to plant trees, then how come we're not doing it? Yeah, it's a great conversation. And I feel like the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast has kind of brought that into the light. Even in the United States, where we're about to be tasked to mitigate the climate catastrophe with great numbers of trees, I'm wondering who's going to step up to get those trees in the ground. We know that it, it can be done by people like Cliff and his people down in the southern states on top of the coal mines and stuff like that. Uh, we know it can be done by citizen arborists as far as a tree tenders type program. But if you're looking for large scale plantings uh, and restorations of decimated forest fragments, I feel like there's a, still a little bit of a uh, gap there in terms of which industry is going to step up and say, yeah, we, we have the equipment, we have the resources, we can get this done. Yeah, it'll be interesting to, to watch that develop over the next few years. I don't know whether you've seen there's this movement, not only in Africa, but other other places where it might be harder to get a lot of people to plant trees. So what they're doing is they're having children make these tree balls and they shoot them with a slingshot. <laughs> and the, the children love this because this is actually part of their science class. They go out and they're all out there with their slingshots and they're taking these balls and they have so many balls set to their side and they have to get all of these planted, if you will, shot across the landscape. And they come back uh, 10 years later and there's a whole forest there. So it, it's getting done, but slowly and trying to find the methodology, I think is the key to success. And, and we know that small trees always do better than big trees when they're planted in the ground. So the idea of planting seed and these seed is this seed is all prepared ahead of time when these kids make these mud ball kind of shapes and then putting it into their slingshot. So th there's a couple seeds per ball and there's different types of seeds per ball. So whatever one survives is fine. It's just the fact that they're seed released in a soil ball. Yeah, I think we keep hearing about some really terrific innovations. You know, I think drones are starting to be part of that conversation. I think one industry that has slowly come around and it's going to be extremely regional is home builders and tree preservation around construction sites, I think incrementally oh, yeah. has improved. Now, I can't say it for my neighborhood. I wish it was the case. I wish I was seeing some success stories. But I think in certain markets, in certain city exurbs, we are starting to see tree preservation being part of the new development. And I think that's coming out of the book called Finding the Mother Tree, where they they know that there's a tree there within the context of that that space that may be green, and that if they can find the oldest trees and varied species of trees, that those are the areas that you leave remaining and then and then build around the other areas because no matter what you put on that property somewhere else, those trees are actually uh, sentient and talking to one another. And they actually help the new trees get started on the same property. And it's been proven through science that these, these trees can actually, uh, just by having them established on that property, can actually help the other new ones coming in. It's just amazing. Yeah. When you're working with your utility companies, you may identify the ones that work well, but do you do any planting? I do not do any planting um, through work, no, but I volunteer in the fall and in the spring with a couple different tree tenders chapters in the city right. of Philadelphia. And that's where I met you. That, that was the first time I met you with the tree tenders at um, Nor in Norristown. Yes, that's correct. I, I feel like because a lot of my job is condemning trees to be removed, um, and not all of them are, are living and healthy. I, I would actually say most of the trees that my team and I have condemned um, over the last 11 years are dead or dying or so hazardous that they're um, a liability and they need to go. But there's definitely several thousand baby trees or, or saplings that I have sent through the system to be removed. And I feel like by planting trees, 
in the city. I'm, I'm trying to balance my karma and, and yeah, I, I need to atone for the removals that I've initiated. What a great mindset for an arborist to have. That absolutely encapsulates the point I'm trying to make. And I'm an arborist and I've condemned trees and I've taken trees down. And there is something on that ledger, right? The urban forestry ledger, red versus black. Of uh, <laughs> I've taken this many down. How many do I need to to plant to balance it out? It it makes perfect sense, you know. And it, I think some of the conversation, Bryce, that we started with earlier in the show is so many of our fellow humans are absolutely freaked out and alienated by trees. And it does spill into the our tree care industry where you are removing trees without a second thought because as someone recently said, it was Michael Dunn, you're doing that big job so that you can pay for that expensive equipment. Yeah. And when we talk about tree planting to save the planet, for me, it, the most practical, uh, immediate landscape that I'm trying to visualize green cooling shade is the hot urban neighborhoods. Whether it's my city of Philly or switch it over to South Asia or to the American Southwest, the cities that are baking because of canopy loss, that's where we want to see the tree care industry step it up and say, we absolutely have to be part of this planning process as well. That's true. Yeah, the neighborhood where I live all the houses were built around 1940. And at the time that the area was developed, it was common practice for builders to plant a couple of shade trees in the front yard. So all through the second half of the 20th century, this was a very green, leafy neighborhood. The streets were completely shaded by all these oak trees. And over the last few decades, they've been aging out and they've either been dying or falling apart or both, and they've had to be removed. And in almost zero cases, have they been replaced by other shade trees? And we're, we're losing the, the green leafy suburbs. For whatever reason, when a new housing development is built, uh, if they plant trees, they're, they're little ornamentals that flower nicely, but aren't gonna be shade trees. And I think that you're right, people are freaked out by trees. Several generations ago, when more Americans lived in rural areas, people knew about trees, they lived among trees, they understood them, and we're a largely urban people now, and people are definitely disconnected from trees. Yeah, you know, then we get the heavy weather events, right? The tornadoes, straight line winds. I don't need to tell you because you're at a storm center when there's heavy weather, but you carry the, the shock and trauma of seeing trees down and you think, why would I ever want to have this situation in my own front yard? Well, we've had Ed Gilman tell us that structural pruning gets trees through heavy weather. And since we've had this great discussion on the small, medium-sized, suitable trees that are also going to give us great canopy, I mean, those are the workarounds right there. It all comes back to educating the public. And, and, and as Eva said, the other professions, bringing them into the conversation and saying it's a win-win for humanity. Well, and I also think, too, even within a boer culture, we think that the only people who are arborists are the people who are working in trucks. But that's not true because I'm an arborist and I don't work in a truck. I teach and I train and I'm out there teaching Woody Plan ID. Um, but there's a lot of people who are doing research to help arborists with trucks to do better because of the research that's being done. right? So yeah. we even have that divide within our own context of abhor culture. There's a lot of abhor culturalists who are planting and that's what they do. I think I've planted more trees in my lifetime than I've ever condemned. I know that for a fact, but it depends on what part of abhor culture you're working in. And so if we all got together and educated the rest of the public, I think that would be really great. Which brings me to the question that we have to ask Bryce. What is your favorite trick? Somehow I think he's given this a little bit of thought. I've given it a lot of thought. A lot um, of <laughs> if you're talking about a species in general, my, my spirit tree would definitely be Nyssa sylvatica. And I know that, uh, what was it, seven people have, have voted for Nessa Sylvatica on the show so far. And I, I'm not sure I love it for the same reason that other people love it, though. One of the main reasons I really enjoy Nessa Sylvatica is that it's difficult to identify. 
And I'm a bit of a tree ID wonk. Yeah, that's a good point. I teach tree identification in the winter because in this area, the Delaware Valley, deciduous trees are, are bare for almost half the year. Some species are bare for more than half the year. And the people that I'm training need to be able to recognize the trees every day of the year because different trees behave differently. And if you're mistaking uh, a staghorn sumac for a walnut or an ailanthus, you could be making a big mistake um, in some respects. So tree identification is a, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. And Nyssa sylvatica is fiendishly difficult to recognize sometimes. Um, I actually call it the trickster tree because it masquerades as other species of tree. The bark is extremely variable. The leaves are just kind of boring when it's in leaf. If you ask a kindergartner to draw a tree leaf, they would draw Nyssa sylvatica. It's a simple leaf. There's no teeth on the margin. There's no lobes. It's just sort of there. It's not even an opposite leaf. So you can't narrow it down to that small number of, of species that have opposite leaf arrangement. It's an alternate leaf tree. There's generally no signs in the winter that you can use. I call them winter cheaters. Um, like sweet gum will have the spiky balls. Catalpa has long skinny seed pods. Royal polonia has the upright fuzzy spikes of flower buds, et cetera, et cetera. Nyssa sylvatica doesn't have anything like that. It's, it challenges you to figure out what it is. For that reason, I really enjoy it. After I've trained a new person on the contract and they've been with us for a few months, occasionally I'll get a text message with a photograph and they'll say, hey, is this black gum? And it just gives me such joy because they've, they've got it. They've, they mastered the trickster tree, you know? <laughs> By the way, it's one of the trees around here that has more common names than any other I've seen around here. People call it black gum. People call it sour gum. People call it tupelo. People call it black tupelo. I'm pretty sure if you go elsewhere in the United States where it grows wild, there's at least a fifth or a sixth name for it. I prefer black gum, but as long as you know that it's Nessa sylvatica, uh, everyone knows what you're talking about. And I think it does have a little bit more hardiness than people give it credit for. Am I right? It's a tough tree. And it's, yeah. it's just... It's wondrous when you find them growing in the wild. There's an area of the Wissahickon, fairly close to where you live, Hal, I think, where there's a grove of Nyssa sylvatica just in the woods. And it's, it's a sight to behold. They're magnificent trees. Yeah, they are. And they're a riparian species too, but yet can be planted in a dry pit. Yeah, they're really versatile. And they have good strong branching generally. I, I very rarely see storm damage with black gum. So that's my favorite species. But if you want to know my favorite individual tree, um, it's a tie. Both of them are ancient American sycamores, um, and one of them Hal actually introduced me to, uh, which is the Lansdowne sycamore. Um, and I think that's three or 400 years old. And How's it looking these days? It's looking good. It had a tough spring from um, sycamore and fracnose disease, mm -hmm. but it's seen dozens or even hundreds of tough springs, and it's, it's still alive. Uh, sycamores are quite good at, at muddling through a cool, damp spring uh, when the uh, sycamore and fracnose or witches broom. Well, why don't we put a link to that uh, up on the website when we put your podcast out so that people can get the street view of it. That would be that's, fun. That's a good idea. And the other one is called the Pauling Sycamore, uh, and that's in uh, Valley Forge National Historic Park. And I was completely unaware of this tree until this winter. One of my arborist friends told me about it, and I visited about 15 times since then. And it's fantastic. I think that tree is confirmed to be about 280 years old. It's shaped completely differently from the Lansdowne sycamore, which makes sense because each tree grows to fill its environment. But both of them are just fantastic. The Lansdowne sycamore, I've measured it. It's about 100 inches in diameter. And the Pauling sycamore is 87 or 88 inches when last I measured it. Wow. I, I just feel like really old American sycamores are fascinating to observe, especially in the winter when it's quiet and it's freezing cold, and you're just under the crown of this magnificent thing. And you know it's alive, but it looks stone dead. I want to invite you, Bryce, the next time you're at that Pauling Sycamore in midwinter, mm -hmm. give it a hug, would you? Well, I, I do hug trees professionally. If I have to put a D-tape around a tree... Yeah, that doesn't count. That's too <laughs> clinical. I will admit it. I'm a tree hugger. I'm an avid tree hugger. There's nothing like it, the energy that you get from a tree. Yeah. So we hear you're part of the Tree Canopy Conference that's coming up in October. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The title of the conference this year is Loss and Restoration, and it's being held Friday, October 14th at Haverford College's Stokes Auditorium. 
You can register at the Morris Arboretum website, which is www.morrisarboretum.org. And I will be co-presenting with a colleague at Pico Energy named John Rizzo. And together we will be discussing, well, the working title of our talk is Utility Vegetation Management, Challenges in Improving Reliability and Public Perception. So it should be fun. Um, the whole conference ought to be a grand time. And John Rizzo and I will be having a Q&A session after our presentation. So if, if you want to know some of the nitty gritty about how uh, utility vegetation management works in the Philadelphia area, please come. That's great, Bryce. I think that'll be excellent. I know you and I have both attended previous conferences. They always put a great program together. I'm looking forward to it. Give us those dates again, please. The date of the conference is Friday, October 14th, and the location is the Stokes Auditorium at beautiful Haverford College in Haverford, Pennsylvania. Our dear friend there, Carol Wagner, yes. is a tree person at Haverford watching the old treaty elm. Yes. Carol was there working on the grounds back when I was a failing student there, uh, scooting <laughs> around on my skateboard in the mid-1990s. <laughs> We're all connected, so yeah, we're all <laughs> thank interconnected. you so much, Bryce. <laughs> well, Bryce, you're awesome, and people like you make this profession what it is with your passion and your knowledge base and your generosity. So thanks so much for coming on and uh, sharing your wisdom and your insights. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. Yes, thank you very much. It was great talking with you. Bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.